0: my name is germ and this is germ warfare the battle of ideas um my my good friend rob dygan otherwise known as moribani is on the other side of your screen there and uh this isn't philosophical friday it's what 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 works with monday rob
1: oh uh, good god uh i don't know this um is mo- no, no it can't be metaphysical Monday because we're talking about very earthly things
0: so <laughs> uh, <laughs> um okay, somebody in the yeah. comments can help us. We'll come up with something um so as most people who are in the audience now probably know i've I've had a bit of a roller coaster the last couple of weeks with censorship and YouTube and vimeo and all kinds of stuff um and hopefully hopefully we'll'. we'll Um, have a a smoother ride for at least a few months before youtube decides to censor me again so in the meantime we'll try and get in as much of rob dyagan as possible (laughs) rob is censorship is censorship a result of an open society
1: (laughs) yo i mean like in theory um in theory those things are, are contradictions um but I think that uh, I think that the way that we understand, uh, I, I think that part of the problem is that the way that we understand open society now, uh, the way that we, the way that people try and achieve these these sort of open pluralistic societies require is starting to require a lot of repression. Mm. Um, and it's, look, I mean, you know, we're still quite free free in the sort of countries that are part of the Western sphere. Um, and so I, I, I wouldn't want to go overboard in um, in, in uh, and exaggerate what the what the situation is, but I think we've built up a culture amongst the elites and the managerial classes that is very favourable to censorship and repression, and that the, over time you're going to see this uh, work itself out in practice more and more. Um,
0: yeah. Well, shall we start at the start? And uh, define open society. It's a very controversial phrase. Well, the thing is, it
1: really it it uh, if you're a liberal, it really isn't. It sort of sounds quite congenial, because it's it's something that's uh, it, the the general idea is that you have a society that. Uh, I, I mean, I, I got into an argument that I haven't finished yet with a fellow <laughs> on Twitter called Civ. <laughs> Um, I think you know he raised he raised some very sound concerns. I don't know if he's watching, but if he is, hello. Uh he's one of these he's one of these fellows in my circle that I occasionally have back and forth with. Um and uh he, he brought up that my particular idea that society has to be has to be driven by a a common set of moral virtues uh is flawed because you can't t- determine what the good is and it will suppress uh, alternative viewpoints. And I think what I'm going to draw out here is that the suppression of viewpoint, that having a guiding principle to society is actually unavoidable, even when you're trying to be neutral, even when you're trying to have no values. Um, And that's what the the philosophy of the open societies ended up doing. And most people will listen to this and they'll go, you know, you know, th- this sounds weird. I don't hear about this. We're not taught. We're not, we don't hear about the open society in school. We're not taught about it in university. And that's because it's actually quite niche. Um, it, it was, uh, it was an idea that was uh, invented by, um, uh, a, a German philosopher called Karl Popper. Well, strictly speaking, I think he was Austrian. Anyway, he, um, uh, what, what's what's common to a lot of these these sort of Austrian intellectuals, and whether they're conservative or um, radical left or whatever yeah. they were, they um, th- there's this there's this tendency for a lot of them, a lot of people who had contact with Vienna, which was a very cosmopolitan uh, city, yeah. uh, f- w- watching what happened to it after the after the Nazis took it over. Um, sort of I think it produced a lot of sort of um, hearts or nostalgia amongst these intellectuals who who left that, uh, that sphere and they wanted to uh, recreate uh, somehow bring society back to that sort of um, ha- those halcyon days they had where they could hang out in the cafes and hobnob with the nobility and the common people mm. equally and um, have conversations with the Germans and French and Russians and Slavs and Jews and you know Bolsheviks and nationalists and all kinds of people and that different sort of, that that sort of open uh that sort of open society you sort of prototype open society it was it's an idea of cosmopolitanism it's an idea that that a lot of people in big cities like because you you get to keep up with all of the fashions and the society is young and vibrant and it's exciting and lots of ideas are flowing around. And, you know, it's all of that stuff like, you know, Ben Johnson saying, you know, when you're tired of London, you're tired of life. Mm. Um, That kind of... Everyone likes that stuff. That's why Cape Town is so popular. It's extremely cosmopolitan. And there's something very, very beautiful and exciting about cosmopolitan society. And I think everyone recognizes that. I think there's very few people who... Don't get some kind of um, at least as young people who who don't who don't get some kind of value out of cosmopolitan society. Yeah, yeah. But I think that um, not only is it very fragile, but it's the, the attempts to, to 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 defend it very aggressively, which I think has followed from 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 those philosophies, has caused a lot of damage and it's created a new, uh, sort of transatlantic, um, elite consensus amongst like the upper middle classes and the managerial classes and the intellectual classes and the politicians who they all agree on a certain blueprint for how to design and manage society centrally. And Karl Popper would have found this horrifying, uh, but, uh, it's largely backed by his protégé uh who's uh, a man called george soros Now, george soros st- studied under him ooh, at ooh. the London school of economics Shh,
0: Shh. you've just demonetized my video yeah um <laughs> I, I know
1: that there's there there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people who are very very cautious of talking about george soros um and recently, there was an there was an incident where Newt Gingrich who is a former Speaker of the House in uh, the United States. I can't remember what his current position is, because I'm taking a step back from American politics. Um, he uh, he was on Fox News and he mentioned that George Soros's was founding was funding a lot of uh, left wing activist groups. Uh, many of them who have ties, uh, th- this is the thing. I mean, you have to be very careful about what you say on air about uh, politically sensitive topics and people who are litigious, as we all know. So he was funding, beg your pardon, a lot of organizations were extremely politically radical. Um, he mm-hmm. f- like he TV. funded a lot. <clears throat> Sorry. Well, that's the problem is that it's, that, that would be impossible to prove. Mm. Um, what what you do see is that it it's uh, the the Open Society Foundation she runs um, tackles um, almost every um, almost every single uh, major left wing uh, political issue you can imagine immigration, yeah. gay rights. Um, uh, he supports Palestine against Israel. It's it's a really really sort of fruity mix of. Um, of things uh he also supports uh land rights in south africa so he put he puts money into there's a couple of groups whose, whose names escape me there's two of them in particular that i'm thinking of um and uh recently uh jp smith who's the head of safety and security in um of oh, okay. for, 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 for cape town yeah mm-hmm. he got um he got in hot water for saying that they're keeping an eye on these people because they are because they are involved in organized illegal land grabs. So and then there's another there's another website uh, that I found that, um they're called farmlandgrab.org and they're not South African. They're actually global and they track all sorts of large organizations and um Um, and corporations that are interfering in politics around the world um, to snap up farmland because farmland and agricultural land and timber and so on, this is now the prime place to put your wealth into considering that um, you've had sort of several decades of um, gentle and not so gentle, what is now called quantitative easing, but what is really sort of, Across the Western world, so that erodes the value of government bonds, and yeah, um, you've, you 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 the, the 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 sort of shrinking interest rates and so on have, have eroded what used to be the most reliable source of wealth, and so people have been sticking their money into the stock market and sticking their money into volatile resources, and now we're getting to the point that the 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 safest place to put your money into is land, particularly productive land. And so big investors like George Soros, amongst many others who are unaffiliated with him, have a, have a great interest in uh, farmland. And so they pressure, uh, they, they, there's a lot of money that George Soros is putting into, um, land rights organizations. And as we know, that depresses the value of land in South Africa, mm. um, the more, the more shenanigans they get up to the worse the price, uh, the price of land, uh, land is. Um, and so yeah. Uh, There there are a lot of people who are very concerned about this. But if you want to understand why he thinks this way, it's not just his monetary interest. He has a very, very profound, he has a very specific philosophy. And it comes from his interaction with George Soros. And George Soros, uh, his interaction with um, Karl Popper, sorry. And Karl Popper was, he used to be a Marxist. And then he abandoned it because he realised that they were like uh, they, they were dogmatic and had more of a religious quality to their thinking, and he thought, well, this is wrong. And he started uh, he, the thing that actually triggered him to to change was very interesting because there's an event in I think it was nineteen nineteen or something like that uh, when the. There was the uh, Mercury was passing before the sun, and so there was a um, right. there was an opportunity for astronomers to observe its orbit. And there was a famous problem uh, that was produced by Newton's uh, Newton's theory of uh, orbital motion through calculus and so on, which it couldn't quite describe all of the erratic motions of the planets, and. Uh, Albert Einstein comes up with the idea that gravitation actually distorts space-time, and therefore it's going to slightly warp the passage of um, of the planets. And so there was uh, this very famous uh, sort of live experiment that produced itself in astronomy. And he he noticed the reaction of the scientists was completely different to the reactions that Marxists who called themselves scientific you know, the science of history, all of that nonsense. You notice the reaction to um, to such an event was very different to that of um, Marxists and similar thinkers. And he said, well, they're not interested in facts. Anytime a contrary fact comes around, they've got a way of saying, um, of burying it and saying, well, you know, as we know now that the, the stupid version of their, their their cope is or their rationalization is it wasn't real socialism or some such thing. Uh, But in those days, it would be something like uh, capitalism has not reached its final form, and therefore history is not ready to, you know, that kind of thing. So he said, well, this is not scientific, and so it's not true. And so that was what turned him away from it. And he started uh, studying um, economics, and he eventually ended up in the London School of Economics, which is a body that was founded by the Fabian Society. And the Fabian Society were a bunch of aristocratic socialists but non-Marxist socialists um, who believed that society needed to be managed in terms of population control and all kinds of sort of funny things like that. And you, it's, you know, uh, the the webs is Beatrice and... Oh, God, I can't remember the man's first name. Uh, so it's the Webs, and it's uh, George Bernard Shaw, Julian great. Huxley, who great wrote. The man-
0: Julian Huxley, who George Bernard Shaw. You don't think so?
1: I think he was an absolute lunatic. I mean, look, he was clearly a great playwright, but he's not. Um, his political ideas are absolutely bonkers. He's he's, he's <laughs> completely totalitarian. <laughs> eugenics the whole the whole shebang. It was very popular. Mm. Similar thoughts were amongst uh, uh, the intellectual peers of Karl Popper, um, uh, Bertrand Russell, who also believed in a totalitarian, eugenic, um, uh, uh, environmentally controlled society.
0: Sounds um, lovely,
1: don't you think? <laughs> mm. Well, if what? you want to see what it looks like, it's... Um, Aldous Huxley wrote a book called Brave New World, and everyone thinks that this is a dystopia because mm. the environment, the social environment is so inhumane and so distorted. But his idea was that this is the ideal society. And his brother, Julian Huxley, mm. wrote the manifesto for UNESCO, which is the main bo- body that writes, uh, it's, it's a huge mentions. body for research mm. and profit making. Uh, policy making for the united nations yeah, yeah. and they design our um, our educational curriculums around the world particularly in south africa it's ridiculous
0: anyway sorry go on
1: yeah so yeah so the fabian society are big shots and they they designed the london school of economics and they designed social science as we know it today because when they came about in 1889 i think it was i'm probably getting the year right but it's in the 1880s So they were founded with this idea that through very slow incremental change, you will get towards a global government which can manage the whole of society, curtail human population growth through direct intervention and um, environmental control. And you'll produce a socialist system in which every single person's life down to the tiniest minutiae are micromanaged by an educated elite who know better than you. And um, there's something very sinister about this. But what they did is they, they decided to go about things by being scientific. So mode where they would they would read the classics and they would read um, all of these you know big political philosophers and and uh, just talk about the theories and, and mention them in in almost a purely rhetorical and abstract way. And what they did is they sent their their, their top uh, their top people for the first time. You are starting to see actual serious scientific research, where they sent people to uh, study um, uh, management procedures in local municipalities, or study um, uh, statistics of disease uh, disease spread and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, it j- just about any sort of little thing, and it was it was very new at the time. Um, And the general idea was that they would push people towards finding scientific ways of implementing their values. But because it was couched in the language of science, it would be seen as it it would gain an air of neutrality, which it definitely has. When you listen to people talking about social science, and they talk about how to create more equality, when they talk about how to create more sustainability and all these things, they talk as if these things are neutral and obvious values that must be achieved. Hmm. And you can sort of step back and go, okay. Well, sustainability, sure, um, that sounds like a great idea. But what do they mean by sustainability? And what what do they want to make sustainable? And all these
0: things. There is no neutral standpoint in politics. Oh, There's but just no ask the United Nations; they have all the answers. They know what the term sustainability yeah. means, Rob.
1: Well, think about what we th- uh, think about how casually people talk about international law.
0: Hmm.
1: International law means. The law written uh, the, the law as understood by the united nations when you say a crime against humanity you're talking about the supreme order of crime that is designated by the united nations the archetypical case of which is the not uh, are the nazis and so when someone accuses you or accuses someone of crimes against humanity what they're saying is you deserve to be executed because you are so beyond the pale you're equivalent to adolf hitler it's the the, the the strength and power of the United Nations is absolutely extraordinary. And people think, well, they don't have any direct control over anything. But the truth is that they have um, extraordinary influence over policymaking around the world. But back to Popper, mm-hmm. his, the, the, the big thing about him is he looked at the uh, old ideas of Plato and the new ideas of Karl Marx. And he saw them as producing tyrannical closed societies. And by closed society, he means it has one set of values, it has one set of identity criteria, and it enforces them with an iron fist and doesn't allow any change.
0: So what? Uh, North Korea?
1: North Korea would be the absolute uh, absolute archetype example of mm. uh, of a closed society. That is definitely... Close society. China is a closed society,
0: and also maybe. Cuba. Uh,
1: uh, Nazi... Cuba would be a closed society. Nazi Germany would be a closed society. But of course, the uh, Soviet, Soviet Union, Union. Soviet mm. Union. Yeah, and and the thing is, they were against the Soviet Union. Him and uh, George Soros, who followed him, who was a student of his, mm. and they they prefer they they opted for um, free market economics to uh, to to a greater or lesser extent. Um, lots of free trade stuff. Lots of um, open borders things um but Karl Popper he was much more reasonable than I think people give him credit for because everyone knows about his ideas through um through George Soros um philosophers know him for his philosophy of science which is quite which is actually quite good because he uh some some uh some leftists confuse him with uh positivist science and so on positivism is a it doesn't matter that's going to be a whole rabbit hole but uh, suffice it to say, his, his big idea that everyone uses is the principle of falsification. So it means that a, a theory is scientific if it can be falsified. So there's some case or criterion that you can test that if it comes to pass, you know that the theory is false. And he says that you can never, confer- you can never prove a theory true. You can find confirming information, but it's never proved true. You can only prove it false. So, you've got the situation where things can be true enough. They're true enough for now.
0: You know? Like, for example, because, a flat earth. It's a very good example. Uh, it's falsifiable or it's unfalsifiable.
1: Yeah. It, no, it is falsifiable because you could look, the, 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 they're try, You just. It's, it's, and its And it's been debunked a million times, but mm. people just insist on ignoring the evidence mm. because they've got their heads stuck up their backsides. So. Um, <laughs> I I I think one of the th- the reason this comes in in, in important is cuz they're talking now about social science. And Karl Popper says, you know, all science you have a difficulty because you're involved with your own cognition and the human mind is fallible and you can make all sorts of biases and you can be attached to your scientific theories. And you listen to I mean any conversation you have with um um uh, tim noakes and, uh, and, and david klatsov you, you you'll, you'll see you'll see that kind of thing come out um which is that scientists are not neutral they get heavily invested in their little pet theories and they can fight very very hard for what seemed like trivialities to people outside there's a famous example of a uh this uh german woman well, she was born in Liechtenstein, called Gertha keller who came up with an alternative theory um which has now been demonstrated to be um far more uh, accurate uh, for how the dinosaurs um, sort of died off, uh, which is that she showed that it was a 100,000 year um, release of this mega volcano structure in what is now India in the Deccan Traps and not the Chicxulub crater in the Yucatan Peninsula um, that wiped out the dinosaurs. So, but she was she was subject to enormous quantities of harassment and even sabotage by her colleagues, um, slander, all kinds of bitter nonsense for this. And it's flipping dinosaurs for crying out loud. You know what I mean? Mm. So scientists, scientists get overly invested in their theories and they ignore their biases. And so there's a lot of thinking around this kind of stuff. But George Soros, because his, his area of expertise was finance. He is an investment guy and he was a broker and he made a lot of money he made a lot of money in, 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 in sort of asset speculation of various kinds. And he was born to a father who was what I think they would call nowadays a self hating Jew. Um, who tried to erase his Jewish heritage and ran a newspaper in the um, sort of made up interlanguage called Esperanto and raised George Soros to speak Esperanto. And Esperanto is this language that sort of cobbles together a lot of different root words and grammatical structures from all the different uh, Indo-European languages and produces something that should be that's sort of vaguely understandable. If you speak I- I one or two European languages, you can kind of make your read your way through uh Esperanto. It's very very it's designed to be very easy
0: to read. Uh, um and sorry that Esperanto it sounds like the name of that of that massive song that's on YouTube. What's it called? Is it Esperado? Does Despacito. Someone... Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't
1: like to I don't like to hear it. It's it's been played too many times. But um I think the thing is I think this I think this shaped George Soros a lot because there's this pattern, and this is where the two of them differ. <laughs> Sorry, I'm too serious for you this morning on on time.
0: Oh um, but no, no, um, please go on. I I, <laughs> I just I didn't yeah. want to lose that uh that really terrible didn't damn want joke. To joke.
1: yeah. <laughs> but the, I think that the the big point of departure, and I think this is a very important one, is at the end of um the open society and its enemies, where um Karl Popper talks about all of the ideas that seek to destroy the freedoms in society that we that we enjoy. Mm. Um, in open society, relatively open societies, because it's a relative term, you know, some countries are more open than others. Poland was more open than Russia under the Soviet Union. Um, you know, there, there are degrees of freedom. Um, uh, so, but, but, but here's, the, here's the thing. He said that there's, there's traditional societies have an organic component. Mm. So they maintain their roots. And he says that there's a, the, so the organic society is something that's in between the closed society and the open society, and he talks about the the real danger that occur, that occurs when you push the open society too far. He says you get something called an abstract society, and in an abstract society, people are, are deprived of their roots, they are atomized, they're removed of their ties, and they become subject to great, complex, and um, alienating. Uh, structures of economic and political organization that don't bear any relation to human needs, desires, or culture. And that that could be a recipe for disaster and tyranny uh, in its own way. So he leaves this warning and he says, we need to maintain some connection to the organic society and, and countries do need to actually hold on to some of their heritage and people do need to feel a sense of belonging because yeah. it's a human need.
0: Yeah, that's sort of what Soros I want to
1: ask you. doesn't. Mm. He says that he he says that um international society or cosmopolitanism is abstract and should be. And so he sees no mm. need for anyone to have any roots whatsoever. Mm. I don't agree with that. You see, and it, 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 this informs his this informs his philosophy. And look, a lot of people say, "Ah, this is a Jewish thing." But you'll find that he he's actually at odds with most of the Jewish world, mainly because he spends a lot of money undermining Israel. Mm. So he is he is not what you would call. Uh, I think people who go into this anti-Semitic um, corner they they they're failing to comprehend the nature of this situation they they they're too blinded by their prejudices to actually analyze this uh, the situation yeah. seriously yeah and and the, the situation is that you have someone who has taken liberal values to such an extremely nihilistic point that he around the world everywhere he invests in organizations and activist campaigns that undermine any value that holds any community together so in the united states he will fund black separatist organizations like people who are openly calling for violent revolution and lynching mm. of public figures he will he will go to israel and send money to very very rabid um uh palestinian organizations
0: no that doesn't make him a very good man no it
1: doesn't i i think he's a fool i think he's a fool because and i think he's a vain man i think no, that you can't be a primarily
0: fool. you can't be a fool to be that wealthy
1: well, no, he's he's an extremely intelligent man, and he knows how to make money. Mm. But I think that primarily, you know, he's he's indifferent to the results of his his philosophy. And the irony is that he writes extensively about this whole thing of what he calls reflexivity, which is a feature of social behaviour that he uh, he started writing about since his student days, and, and that he'd noticed when uh, he'd noticed in action when he started trading which is that um, all of the neoclassical uh, theories of economics talked about um, trade be having rational feedback, uh, having rational sort of behavior. People mm. buy this because they have an interest or preference, and it's linear. There's just like these straight relations. But he says, no, there are bandwagon effects. There are uh, reinforcing feedback loops, all kinds of things. And so what you believe, changes the environment how you act changes the environment now from this he looked at Karl Popper and he says oh well you know Karl Popper doesn't really understand society because I understand it because I can see all of these feedback loops and because I've been successful in making money of it Mm. I clearly must understand everything about society which is a very arrogant position to take and I think that he completely lost sight of the long-term effects of such behavior which is chaos and destruction. Um, he, 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 his particular point of departure with, with, with Karl Popper got really specific because he said that Karl Popper failed to realize the sheer extent to which um, human society is indeterminate and how little grip social science has. But I don't think that that's really that's really true. I think what Karl Popper what Karl Popper in his own way was more radical because what he was saying is, because uh, Soros didn't understand hard sciences and he never did. Uh, he never did. Um, uh, but but Karl Popper did, and he 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 realised that in 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 whether you're ta- in in the physical sciences what you what you get from your instruments is as much affected by what you desire to measure as uh, as as what is really there and so how you care uh, even things which seem very hard um can be very very difficult uh, very very difficult to study in an objective way um and one of the things that soros lost sight of is that even in the hard sciences you've got engineering and in engineering, they deal very much with feedback loops and with sort of complex sensitivities in materials that are relatively unpredictable. I mean, you can ask anyone who has tried to study fluid dynamics, how little understood that that field of, of knowledge is, particularly with non-Newtonian fluids. Um, so the, 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 the problem with Soros is he thinks, oh, well, you know, science is easy. Social science is hard, but I've got it down because I've shown that I can make money off of it. I can get predictable results, re- relatively speaking. Um, and I mean, someone like uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb is the these sort of irrationalities and these strange features of the market, but he also realized that a lot of the way in which people uh, learn how to get by in the world is based on sort of these subtle, non-rational, um, bits of knowledge that aren't always rationally interconnected that you pick up from your environment. Mm. Fragile ways that can be destroyed by, um, central control and design. And the problem with George Soros is because he has a very particular view of what society is made of, you know, on a technical level. Um, he has this he has created a monstrously large bureaucratic organism that spans the entire globe and intervenes at every stage to do very very similar behaviors um, which are highly destabilizing and can be highly damaging and i think that there's a great example of this which i wrote about i wrote about when i started seeing it happening and i was very very confused is there were district. There, were, there was a district attorney, and I can't remember which one I picked up on first. Whether it was, whether it was Chicago. It might have been Chicago because it was that Jesse uh, Jussie Smollett case. Uh, the the district attorney there was called Fox, something Fox. And uh, between them and people in Portland and people in uh, New York and, and a whole bunch of places in the United States. Where district attorneys that were elected um since twenty sixteen mm. were refusing to prosecute um crime. Like even violent crime, like pretty serious stuff. And the policy they went behind is that anybody who commits a crime where the value of the damages is less than a thousand dollars, we won't charge them or arrest them. And they stopped prosecuting um they stopped prosecuting criminals who assaulted police. Yeah. And I started looking at this and I thought this is the most absolutely insane thing I've ever heard. They they don't prosecute uh, vagrancy, drug abuse, anything. It was just, it was the most bizarre situation I heard of. And I started noticing where it was cropping up all over America. And I wrote a little article it, and it turns out that all of them were backed by George Soros' Open Society. Because it's this idea of being you know, you're lenient to criminals because only a closed society would judge them for them for their behavior. What you really need is for them to be helped um, economically. Mm. And, sounds very and postmodern. So, well, it's not postmodern. It's, it's quite simple, old-fashioned uh, utilitarian utopianism. It's this idea that if you give people enough handouts, then they'll beca- uh, become well and then they'll seek productive lives. And evidence demonstrates that that is just not the case. Uh, I mean, I know a lot of people will have heard of Rutger Brechman and his utopia for realists, but the only piece of evidence he's got uh, contrary to, to what I've said, um, which rests on the entire mountain of human experience since the dawn of time is that there was this tiny pilot study in India and another tiny pilot study in Canada that didn't last for more than a couple of years. So, Kind of ridiculous.
0: It it but, Rob, it, it sounds like it sounds like I, I I must just I'm trying to think as I'm speaking, but it sounds like mm. there is a very happy medium between an open society and a closed society, but it almost sounds yeah. like it's a tug of war. But it sounds like a tug of war that should probably lean slightly to the closed society.
1: I think so. Mm. I think so. I, I'm sensitive to that. But I, I really like the idea that Karl Popper used of an organic society where you do have openness and you do have diversity because naturally all societies, no matter how homogenous they may appear, have a great deal of diversity in them. And trying to crush that diversity is is, um, is a mistake. You do need society to be able to develop and have a diversity of culture and opinion and interests um, I mean, look at look at um, look at the Western Cape, for example. How extraordinarily complex and 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 imagine someone picking one element of Cape culture and using that as the blueprint to impose on everyone. That would not work. But what you do need to do is to try and find. Um, uh, you need to find common ground, which. Moral principles which are uplifting to all different streams of society. Um, you know, and I, I, it's sort of like a gardening approach mm. to uh, rather than landscaping. Right. Um, you know, so instead of trying to rip everything up and put it into like neat little uh, geometric flower boxes, you look at what's naturally growing in your garden and you occasionally mm. pull out weeds and you make sure that the good things grow. It's a tug of, and I think we have, and you don't allow. uh, You know, I mean, the thing is that you, you got to imagine that international society is like a flock of birds dropping seed um, into your garden, and all kinds of funny things are going to grow there. And if they've Mm. all been feeding on the same tree, your garden is going to be going to be inundated with weeds from one particular plant. And right now. The international society all has this idea of a cosmopolitan, utopian internationalism. And they're going to turn your garden into a monoculture. And that is their very intent. Um, but it,
0: it, it's, it, seems, it seems to me that the idea of an open society is tightly integrated with democracy. And the more, it, the more open your society is, the more open your, your society becomes.
1: Yes and no. I mean, the thing is that what what, what Soros doesn't realize is that at a certain point, um, you can try and make society as open as you like. But if you have a static, um, if you have a static idea of what an open society looks like, you're creating a static image of society to conform to. Hmm. And you'll know you notice how all of the woke people who are all into like diversity and do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. They all dress the same. They all look the same. They all act the same. They all all want the same same
0: thing. They all want everybody to look and be the same.
1: Exactly. And and Mm -hmm. you think about this. They they how often they talk about diversity and tolerance and you know different cultural values and everything, Mm -hmm. but they're just blending it into the same grey paste that they're forcing everyone to feed to eat, Mm -hmm. and. This is the thing is that becomes its own form of a paradoxically, the open society is a closed society. Yeah. It's just a much bigger and scarier and heavier one, um, which is much more vicious. Um, And so I think that, uh, I think that if you actually want an open society, you have to preserve, you have to preserve that diversity. Um, You have to preserve the diverse roots of the cultures and the sort of cultural differences that are native to your society. You have to hold on to those because otherwise you will be taken over by whatever the selfish cosmopolitan urban elites want. And they usually are very intolerant, very smug and very detached. And they do not have much interest in um, uh, in respecting what the people in the countryside want respecting what people in, you know, urban communities want. They think, oh, well, let's come up with some fancy idea for restructuring everything. And I think, you know, this, this can hurt people a lot. Now, of course, I'm not entirely averse to, to things like town planning and so on, but I, I, I prefer the, the sort of organic um, approaches of people like Leon Krier, who I, I encourage anyone to Google right now. It's very, very interesting. He's a Luxembourgian. Architect who is involved in a movement called New Urbanism, which is about mm-hmm. trying to um, trying to look at the organic ways that that cities have formed in the past, in ancient towns and ancient cities, and um, uh, bringing bringing existing communities into line with the way that human beings generally choose to live. Uh, conform to the climate conform to the 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 local aesthetic tastes and vernacular traditions rather than what has become the international style uh favored by again the same crowd of transatlantic elites yeah you know lots of concrete and glass and oblong blocks and aggressive shapes and big massive um hyper integrated apartment complexes where everyone lives as an alienated unit in a pod you know, and it's there, there's none of that organic community that 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 you find when you visit like a little. I live in a lovely little town at the moment in mm. in um, in the yeah. Netherlands, and so it's a backwater over here. No one, everyone scoffs when I say I live in Baarn so but it's it's really lovely if you go to the centre of town. It's, they've got these buildings that have been preserved for nearly no,
0: for like a thousand years. It's beautiful and it's absolutely stunning. Yeah. It's like,
1: you know, all of these little narrow walkways, you can't have cars in there. Mm. And I mean, this is a thing that I share with the, the, the environmental crowd is I, I like that sort of freedom from the cars. I like being able to bicycle around in the Netherlands. I like a lot of this stuff. So it's not like you sit and throw out everything just because it sits on the other side of a political aisle. There are plenty of good ideas to go around. But i think people need to respect people's roots and and
0: can i the failure
1: to do so tears society apart
0: i mean you can look at america now can i read you a quick paragraph here that's on wikipedia it says yeah bergson describes a closed society as a closed system of law or religion it is static like Hmm. closed mind bergson suggests that if all traces of civilization were to disappear. The instincts of the closed society for including or excluding others would remain. In contrast, an open society is dynamic and inclined to more universalism.
1: Yeah, but I think there's there's an interesting point, and this is from Christian theology about what 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 is universalism.
0: Mm.
1: And so. A lot of people look at Jesus Christ and talk about universal love as something that is, uh, well, it's just, I love mankind. Mm. And to quote uh, Joseph de Mestre, um, responding to the way that the French revolutionaries interpreted this, he says, well, I've met Frenchmen and I've met Germans and I've met Galicians and I've met Englishmen, but I've never met this man person that you're talking about. And Dostoevsky also had another quote in a similar vein, where he talked about how much he he would vacillate between lo- uh, loving humanity as an abstract concept, but despising human beings in particular, um, in in their real life, like, you know, clearing their throats and you know clogging up the line for the bus um, or you know things like that, you know, that we all sort of get irritated with. And I think that what Christian, what the Christian tradition encourages us all to do is to extend compassion and um, uh, understanding and love, whether it needs toughness or leniency to express itself um, best uh, to the people whom we have organic human bonds with. Um, And that doesn't mean people who share our race necessarily, it doesn't mean people who share our political ideas necessarily, it means, you know, your neighbor. Mm. Your neighbor isn't a guy in Karachi, you know. The, the idea, the thing, the, this idea of moving society towards these grand abstractions can be quite poisonous. Uh, and I I look at my, my old teacher, David Benatar, who firmly believes that because all human beings have equal value in the abstract, they ought to have equal value in the concrete. And he believes that and not just human beings, but all creatures. And so he gets to this point where he talks about he talks about not only for environmental reasons, but also for moral reasons. He believes that um, that there, there's a harm of coming into being that is from. Um, but I mean, look, that's actually a separate argument. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. connected to his presence. Uh, his the the the. Um, the specific um, what shall we call it uh, premise of his universalism, but his uh, the person he he most follows is a, an Australian philosopher called Peter Singer, who talks about um, you know why why are you giving so much to your own children when there are people starving in Bangladesh? Because at the time there was a famine in Bangladesh when he was writing this article, nineteen seventies. And there's, there's this general perspective that one one has an obligation to sacrifice, not only of one's own, but of the bonds nearest one for the sake of, you know, people on the other side of the world who you don't know. And I don't think that it works like that. I don't think that society can function on that level. And I think that the results of having such utilitarian thinking particularly in the notion that the only value in life is, 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 is pleasure. And the only hurt in life is pain. The only, the only negative thing in life is pain is, um, this is a very English philosophy and this informed, um, this informed the Fabian socialists. Um, and it, and it, it informs a lot of the, the international sort of, uh, progressive liberalism that you sort of get that sort of, blurs strangely into utopian socialism nowadays they're trying to equalize everyone they're trying to make sure that everything gets shared so that the least gets enough and i think what we can see if you examine what capitalism has done what the market has done um over the last couple hundred years is that even without, you know, major interventions, which people are now pushing for major liquidations and equalizations of wealth, even against the attempts to hold down labor prices, even against the attempts to produce greater um, competition, quite naturally, um, more wealth is created and ends up in the poor. And we're looking at a system now where in many places of the world, even you know, in China, they they they're facing a problem of rising cost of labor, and they have been facing this for a couple of decades now, and they've been desperately pushing down any sort of union organization. It's happening against the efforts of uh, of industrial of the industrial elements of society that people become wealthier, their va- their labor becomes more valuable, um, and. I think, that, I think that the attempts to sort of crush fr- uh, free society and control it because you're worried that when people love and care for those nearest them, they're going to neglect those furthest away from them. I think that it's a foolish way to go about things. And we've seen the results multiple times of what happens when you try and equalize society in essentially controlled fashion, whether it's in the Soviet Union or in its most egregious form in Cambodia.
0: Yes, and at because- the moment,
1: we can be looking at the slow, sticky, sort of gentle and sweet way of doing it. And we think, well, that's kind of reasonable. But as time goes on, you'll realize that it, it's mm-hmm. having more and more deleterious effect on society. And it's it, because it, it creeps into education, it creeps into the values people have, and it eats away at community cohesion and, and creates new animosities. And the open borders thing... I mean that's something that Europe will have to reckon with for for generations to come, mm. and we we don't we don't really know how they're going to react to it because we know that um, not all of the immigrant communities are going to integrate, and there's a great likelihood that they're going to be transformed into something like the United States, where they have a permanent animosity between different racial groups that is driven on by egalitarians who use yeah. those um, differences and as, to justify redress and um, inequality. And as Nassim um, Taleb
0: says, yeah, as Taleb says uh, the majority always um, adapts to the minority. So what happens is... In you, Western society. In Western society, In Western liberal society. And that's a problem. What do you...
1: What he's talking about with with the cases like the intolerant minority is he's talking Mm. about a very, very specific case. He's talking about something where a small minority give a huge amount of care over some particular issue that affects the free market, and the majority don't care. Mm. In that case, then you will see the intransigent, and I think the word he uses is is intransigent, not intolerant the intransigent minority will end up imposing their preferences on the market because it's far more easy to standardize a product line yes. than it is to Yeah. And so well, it, it, it in gives that the example respect,
0: of it gives the example of halal meat. So let's say a butcher yes. a butcher opens in your town um and the Muslim community is in the absolute minority. Now mm. the the majority generally speaking won't mind buying halal meat but the muslim minority will absolutely mind buying non-halal meat
1: it's different it's different for um orthodox christians because they are not allowed to um you're not you're not allowed to you, to consume any food that has been sacrificed to um another religion so that that creates that creates conflict in that mm. in, that, in that. so they can't eat kosher or halal they they simply cannot um and it's uh that that would create that would create a problem. Um but I, I, I think that uh I think that a lot of people you know, a lot of people bend the rules and a lot of people live in societies where they aren't most most Christian societies are not Orthodox, uh Eastern Orthodox. So um they they they're not going to have that problem. Yeah, but, but you look you look you look around Cape Town, you look at around Cape Town, you go to any shop, you go to your local spa you look in the meat and it says halal. And now I mean I've never had a real problem with that. It's but it's it still, makes it but it's a principle,
0: sense. Rob. It's a principle.
1: Which principle is this? Well the, the Orthodox Christian principle.
0: <laughs> well it would be the principle that why must the majority completely readjust according to the minority. Well no, they're not
1: really it's it's not really an adjustment. Uh, unless you uh, unless your belief state that you 're not allowed to mm-hmm. and that that's that 's particularly that 's what makes um, nassim taleb 's case so specific. The mm-hmm. difference is that the 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 ideologies that have been used by people pushing things like an open society or a global society mm-hmm. um this this sort of abstracted rootless homogenized society that that, that they 're going for is that they really do demand that the that the majority adapt to the minority because they say we have been imposing ourselves and it's true west the west did impose itself during the height of its power on the rest of the world um and they're saying because that we've imposed on them in the past you know we have to make amends for that and we have to apologize for that and we have to make ourselves a bit smaller so we don't impinge on them but in reality, it actually it hurts everyone because you, mm. you now get these enclaves of, um, of minorities in European societies who don't know how to get along with the majority of society. Um, and while in the upper middle classes, people will integrate because they've gone to higher education and they understand more of the cultural nuances and they can blend into professional society. You get a cosmopolitan professional society where everyone abandons their roots and pursues... Um, Material pleasures and uh, pop culture and all this kind of very sort of weak stuff the The rest of society is sort of stuck with their differences and stuck with their diffidence against each other, their lack of trust. Um, they are they are crippled and prevented from truly integrating because they're not given the social structures that supports their integration if you make it too easy for people to slip into their own communities and to slip into their own ways, then you you sort of cripple them. You can cripple them for generations. And uh, Helen Dale was pointing out recently on, on a podcast. She said that um, there's an Australian uh, uh, lesbian conservative, which is an interesting combination. Um, But she, she was pointing out that, the the difficulty of understanding um english language uh is particularly unique because the it's easy to to grasp a very little bit of english but it's fiendishly difficult to grasp a, a quantity of english that is sufficient to exert yourself in higher society or complex society or you know express yourself in legal contexts it, mm. it where she says in france it's difficult at first because it's hard to pronounce and it has strange uh, ways of phrasing itself. But as time goes on, um, getting better at it gets easier because at no point does anyone dumb themselves down for you. You are expected to learn French as is. All of the um, all of the broadcasts are in refined, uh, refined academic French. Yeah, everything that you're you're addressed to people expect you to. Um, to bring yourself to French. And what it does mean is that while France has far more, it has has a much more complex immigration problem. And that's their religious divisions there. And there's the problem of Algeria and all of these sort of divisions that you create integration is much more, um, accepted there. Mm -hmm. And partially because they're so insistent about their roots and proud of their traditions, um, You know, um, whereas England, who's making apologies for itself and retreating from its roots, is in many ways, um, disadvantaging and fragmenting society and creating more room for conflict and competition between ethnic groups than they ever would if they forced integration upon them. That's an
0: interesting paradox.
1: Yes. And so what you do is you create a layer of society which is homogenous and has no roots. Mm. And beneath them, a fragmented balkanized and auto apartheid society that will persist in having mm. violent confrontations and uh feuds for the rest of time mm. and this is this is the um this is the world that multiculturalism has built, and I think that it 's not to say that you cannot have a pluralist culture I think that uh, I think that the Cape Flats has demonstrated. That a pluralist culture can survive or even thrive, and I don't mean economically. I mean the Cape Flats is destitute. It, it, they're, they're, mm. But what you don't see, what you don't see, is you don't see Christians and Muslims shooting each other up. You don't see sectarian violence, and that is it's 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 an absolute miracle, really, because um, in the rest of the world, uh, Christians and Muslims do not get along well because they have they have history in Europe. Um, the Ottoman Empire raided Europe for slaves for hundreds of years. Um, so did the North African Barbary pirates, and so Europe has a collective cultural memory of of of, of Muslims as violent conquerors. Um, and in many parts of Europe, they celebrate the days that they beat the Muslim conquerors back. So, uh, even even Rule Britannia, the, the the great patriotic song of of, of England was written to commemorate the day that they, they built a navy that could defeat the Barbary pirates who were raiding um, their coastal towns for slaves. So the Europe and the Middle East who took, uh, you know, and we know in the modern era that Europe conquered the Middle East and carved it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so both of them have a very deep and um, abiding distrust of one another. And the the conflicts that they've experienced are in recent memory. The wounds they've afflicted on one another are in recent memory. And so letting go of that is going to be very difficult. The Middle East and and Europe are not going to be friends anytime soon.
0: Rob. But we don't
1: see that. We don't see that in South Africa. You've got one minute to
0: horseshoe. To horseshoe. Well,
1: I think we should be. Uh, I I think we should be very cautious because the idea that you you can produce an open society that takes a relativist position or neutral position on values, the idea that that doesn't have its own blueprint built in, the idea that that is going to lead to a free society that's free of problems is, I think, an enormous fallacy. And I think the idea that you can um, you can do away with traditional values, that you can do away with um, a, an idea of virtue and morality in society, and simply push for uh, competing voices um, in order to silence um, the majority society—it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. The abstract society will. a very, very great and finely grained bureaucratic tyranny mm. that is discriminating against people on the basis of their ideas, on the basis of their ethnicity. Um, and it's producing an extraordinary amount of political violence, particularly in the United States. And I think that we need to be... People People think that they're safe. Liberals, in particular, think they're safe. In taking the position that we must make society as open and as indeterminate as we possibly can, but the truth is that that is that in fact leads to the very thing that you despise, yeah, and unfortunately I mean, I think that's the great irony of it is that George Soros believed that he was doing good as vain as he is, I think he genuinely believes that he's while he's making money helping humanity mm. I think he genuinely believes that, but and I think that
0: he is mistaken. Do you know uh, where the road with paved intentions leads, Rob?
1: The road paved with good intentions. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <sighs>
1: yeah. I mean, many a road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, so, good intentions are not good enough.
0: Somebody in the comments says, is this conversation sponsored by George Soros? <laughs> <laughs> what? Yes, yes, let's say it is. I've, I...
1: I've just gone to tell I have just told I've just made an hour long argument about how George Soros <laughs> is ruining the world in the most comprehensive fashion possible. Is this sponsored by George Soros?
0: Is you know, <laughs> Let's just let's just say it is, and uh, Rob, I'll send you my half a million and I'll keep the other half a million that he sent that he sent our way. Shall we just? Shall we just go halvesies?
1: Uh, I think I think uh, I think I've done all the work here, so you're gonna have to give me the whole bundle. I'm afraid.
0: <laughs> I'd rather not be affiliated with him, so you can have the whole the whole million. How about that? <laughs> Jeepers creepers! I mean,
1: like I I noticed the second I was saying that, you know, um, it's not because he's Jewish. Like I saw about like 15 um, watches on the, on the view counter drop off. <laughs> like, Oh, well, I came here for antisemitism. I'm not getting my antisemitism today. I was like, well, yeah, you know, good luck. Go get it somewhere else. I'm afraid.
0: Yeah. You know, we have to work a little bit harder, Rob, to be antisemitic. We need to be, we need to work harder to be all these things. But anyway, listen, your information is yeah. under the video as always. Please subscribe to Maraboni, everybody. Um, Rob is, uh, is a regular feature, and hopefully we won't run out of talking points. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, we won't. There's, there's plenty to talk about. The world is enormous, um, the, the, and there's millions and millions of interesting people we could talk about. So,
0: Rob, have a good day. All right. Cheers, man. My name is Jerm. This was Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas.